Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. Um, we both threw a punch at the same time. He threw a right hand and I threw a left hook. And I still have a picture and it's like like this close. Like I, He just barely landed it before me and uh, just caught me flush. And I just remember backing up against the ropes and I backed up and I went to go, you know, tighten up. He threw an uppercut, split my gloves and I dropped. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gents, welcome back to another episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. My guest today is Steve Orozco. Steve is a really interesting cat. He's the CEO of Smash Global Sports and Entertainment, which is an MMA organization that puts on MMA fights in a super nice black tie gala-like experience. He says it's kind of taking MMA from NASCAR to Formula One. And so that's what he does now. But back in the day, he was a Wall Street broker. Then he was a pro MMA fighter. And this guy just has a lot of energy, and I love talking to him. Fan of the week goes to Vegas Vince JJ. That's Vegas underscore Vince underscore JJ on the gram. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu purple belt. And from the looks of things, just had a pretty cool experience training with the great Gordon Ryan. So Vince, thank you for tuning in. Greatly appreciate it, my friend. And this episode is also brought to you by, by, by nothing, folks. It's brought to you by the gratitude that I have for all of you tuning in. Thank you so much. Keep on tuning. 2020 is going to be an incredible year. I have so many plans in the works, more docu-series, more content on the website that I can't announce just yet, but we will soon. So thank you so much. Now let's give it up for Steve Orozco. All right, folks, we're here with Steve Orozco, fighting entrepreneur. Man, he does it all. How you doing, Steve? I'm good. How are you today? Outstanding. Really excited to have this conversation, man. I, I got to tell you, your energy and your enthusiasm is infectious just from reading about you, man. So I'm excited to get into this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Anything wrestling, ah, it's my soul. Feeds so, my soul. <laughs> so we were just talking, and if you're watching this uh, on the video, you can see Steve has a, a cut above the eye. How did you get back into wrestling in the past, uh, in the past year here? Uh, you know, obviously when I was fighting, wrestling is such a big fabric of practice. Of, yeah. I'm sorry, of pro practices and uh, getting ready for fights. And for me, wrestling was my everything. And it still is. It's like riding a bike. If I didn't wrestle for a year and I got back on the mat, it's like, oh, everything. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so long story short last year. So I have a, I have a niece who, um, a female, uh, she's a freshman at AMI high school. And I'm like kind of like a, a role model. I didn't realize I was her role model. And she started wrestling because I wrestled. And uh, she asked me one day if I would come down and just, you know, do run a practice. And I said, of course I would. And that I just fell in love with all those kids. It brought back all my high school memories, which for me is, you know, high school. I've, I'm trying to think. When it comes to wrestling, high school is such a big part of your life. Yeah. And and if I have to say of all the people that made, had made the most impact, it was my high school wrestling coach because they gave you so much of their time, like on and off the mat. So uh, it just brought back all those memories. And that one practice turned into me coaching and helping every single practice for almost the whole season while I was back in Connecticut. Wow. So uh, ironically, we moved back to Connecticut in in July to test it out for a year. 
I'm still back and forth between LA and uh, I'm going to be coaching um, this entire winter. God. So I'm really excited about that. So this black guy happened because, uh, you know, sometimes two people shoot at the same time. You collide heads. <laughs> One person usually takes more of the wrath than the other. And uh, I literally had just a, I got a cut over my eyebrow. Mm hmm. And, uh, and my eye was fine, but you know how it is. No one sees what happens the next day once it swells. You know? <laughs> so now all the blood is behind my eyelids. So it looks worse than what it is. Yeah. It looks good, though, man. I tell you what, I, I coached high school for a couple of years right when I was out of, the, uh, out of the competitive ranks. And, man, going on a journey with a team, like a season journey, you learn so much about those kids, and there's so many ups and downs. And as a coach, you don't really – realize the impact you're making but kids will come up to you 10 years later and be like coach coach warner do you remember this or that and they remember all these stories man so god i'm excited for you to, that you get to go through a whole season with the high school team uh me too and the most ironic thing was we had so last year i really worked with these two kids and they're basically the weight class below me and my weight class who didn't make states last year and they both made states after we worked together and i just whooped I literally just whooped their ass every day. You know, they, they couldn't take me down. I would level change so much. They would fall. And uh, they were just amazing kids. And I fell in love with them both. One kid graduated, but one kid is still there. And the kid that's still there, he I, he placed eighth at state, which is, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the seven kids above him all graduated. Oh, wow. So he comes into the kind of the season ranked number one. So it's just going to be me and him all year. So my goal is – State champ for you. This scar right here in my eyebrow is my state champ scar. You better fucking win states. <laughs> <laughs> Get it done, baby. Get it done. So you're the CEO of Smash Global right now, a fight uh, promotion company, I guess you could say. Yep. And you've had a really an incredible career. But let's go back to the grassroots, man. Where did you grow up and what was your family life like growing up as a kid? How'd you get involved with wrestling from there? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a small town New England kid. I'm from the from the baby state Rhode Island. Okay. Um, easy, ch a good childhood. I think a childhood that I wish more kids had now today. Mm. Climbing trees, throwing rocks at buses, playing sports every season. You know, I, I had a good childhood. It was all about my friends, friends and sports. Did you have any brothers or sisters? Uh I'm like a, I like to say I'm an only child, but I'm not. Okay. So me and my sister were 10 years apart. Yeah. I think when you're 10 years apart, I mean, obviously now me being 38 and her being 28, we're super tight, but growing up, you know, when I was 14, high school, 15, she was five. Yeah. You know, so it's almost like two only children. And then how did you get involved with wrestling as a young kid? Oh man, I don't, I'm trying to think how the first day I stepped on the mat my father didn't want me to box. He always wanted me to wrestle. And then uh, I just found it. You know, I actually started playing basketball first. Okay. You know, and I remember being at basketball practice and kids were wrestling. And I was just watching up because they were on the court and the mats were upstairs. I remember watching up and seeing these kids wrestle and my coach yelling at me, you want to fucking wrestle? Get off this court and go wrestle. And the whole time I'm like... So the next season, I had to play basketball. I went upstairs and started wrestling. And the first time I wrestled, I swear to God, it was like goosebumps. I mean, I got my and I got my ass whooped. So I remember my freshman year, I came in, and we had a returning state champion at 119, and then the kid who was a 103 was also an all stater. Now I was only 100 pounds. Yeah. So I had to wrestle 112, which happened. It was empty weight class. But not only that, I also got my ass whooped by a state champ every day and a kid who was all state every day. And I think I just learned so much from that. Mm -hmm. Just constantly getting your ass kicked, getting beat up and coming back for more. And um, some kids quit and some kids love it. And I just happened to be wired in a way that I actually enjoyed it. It just drove me. And then uh, – and not, not to cut you off. No, so no, go first, ahead. <laughs> so my first wrestling match I ever had in high school, I wrestled a kid – and uh, I pinned him in 44 seconds, and I thought I was the fucking man, right? <laughs> I'm going around school. Everyone's like, oh, Steve, you're fucking good, da-da-da. The next match, and this is so embarrassing. I never talk about it. I got pinned in nine seconds. <laughs> so I know. So so literally, I so my first um, home match, it was against Coventry. Coventry High School in Rhode Island was like 
like the school, like the okay. Iowa of the eighties who 30 state champions, state championships in a row. I went against the returning state champion for my first home mat. And he took, he really right off the whistle, took double leg takedown. I didn't have a chance to roll right to my back. And it was like, one, two, three, done. I was like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that just drove me so much too. I was like, I need more of this. That can never happen again. Well, it takes a rare person to look at those type of obstacles and, and turn them into opportunities for them. And, and you certainly seem like that kind of guy. And man, wrestling just brings that out of people, doesn't it? It does. It's so crazy. You know, on the way to the first captain's practice, um, so my cousin Ariana, she, you know, she's like, yeah, we've already had a few kids quit. And I'm like, oh, that's like the best thing is having such hard practices and weeding out those kids right. who don't love it because to get killed like that and work like that, you have to truly love it and it has to feed your soul. Yeah. You can't just like, cause wrestling, you don't play wrestling. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. No, it's funny. My girlfriend knows nothing about wrestling and I'm an absolute nut. And so I've been trying to fill her in and just get her up to speed. But man, unless you've done it, it's hard to, uh, hard to understand what, what we're talking about sometimes. Yeah, I agree with you. And so how did you go from this, like wrestling in high school, and you sent me some pictures, you had some encounters with Gable and Brands, and then you went into banking, yeah. like kind of what was your journey from then through, next thing you know, you're working on Wall Street, and you're little unhappy with your life, and then you kind of, what, what was that path like? Yeah, well, when it comes to, I'm the kind of guy who, I want to go to the epicenter of everything. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, when I was in high school, um, after my first year of wrestling, I was like, oh man, I got kept some catching up to do. I want to get better. So I went to Dan Gable's wrestling camp and they had a, at the time, I know it's different now, but at that time, this was like 1997, they had like the six day technique camp and the 14 day intensive training camp. Mm -hmm. And I did both. So I went for the first six days, stayed for another 14 days. And that was one of the first times I really got pushed in a way I've never been. I mean, you're 15 years old, first time ever being away from home mm -hmm. in a dorm with a bunch of other wrestlers doing stupid shit. And then your coaches. So my coach was the first year it was Tom Brands and it was uh, Douglas Schwab. Mm -hmm. And oh man, I got my ass whipped. <laughs> and, was, and those guys, that was the first time I ever saw a level of wrestling I've never seen before. I remember the first day they bring me to the auditorium and they're putting the highlight reels on. And uh, I still remember the highlight reel. And it was, uh, remember Mike Mena? Oh, yeah, dude. Illinois legend. Four-time state champ uh, in Illinois. Oh, yeah, so I remember him. And he was he was my coach the second year. And uh, I remember seeing him. He, like, went for a takedown, like, threw the guy onto, like, the ref table. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. It was him and, like, Joe Williams. Oh. I was like, these guys are monsters. I want to fucking be those guys yep you know and uh it, it's just never went away and you know when you go to a camp like that the kids that go there are the real serious kids you got state champions from all over the country mm -hmm. and i got my ass whipped. i'm from little rhode island so Rhode Island, you have like i don't know 75 schools like wrestling yeah so i'm going against kids that are state champions from florida and kids from iowa and it was such an eye-opener and I loved it and I still fucking love it <laughs> still. So yeah. So like first, so example wrestling went to epicenter. I thought I was the best of the time. So I went there mm -hmm. and then when I was in college, you know, when you want to go to college, you really don't know what you want to fucking do. Right. Like you're 18 years old. How can you truly know unless you want to be a doctor or lawyer, I guess. And I remember seeing a movie called boiler room. Yes. And I was like, yeah, that, those guys look like they have a good time. I want to be one of those guys. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so what do I have to do? Okay. I got to work on wall street. And I, and I started looking in the stock market and it looks fun. Obviously you don't really know the, the back end and what really goes on. And, uh, Pace university was the closest school to wall street. So I said, I'm going to go to Pace university. So I went to Pace university and I did my across the street, um, cross street from 45 wall street on the corner of wall street, William. Um, did my time on Wall Street, and then I got recruited by a firm called Barnum Financial Group in Connecticut, and that's what ended up bringing me to Connecticut okay. for the next chapter. Dude, it's so funny you say that about the epicenter and boiler room. So my day job is uh, technology sales. So I used to work at Salesforce, and okay. like I lived in San Francisco for five years because that's the epicenter of technology sales. 
right? Kind of in yep. in your generation, Wall Street, that was the thing. And then now I feel like technology is so popular that like the reps out there, it's kind of like that boiler room mentality. So we would watch boiler room all the time, man. It's like, oh, you see yeah. this fucking grin on my face? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love that yes. scene, dude. Um, so at this point, are you starting to kind of have a yearning to get back to physical activity and being kind of an entrepreneur? Cause obviously you have that. I mean, how did, how did you go from that where you're making good money? You're, you know, you have the prototypical great job. Are you starting to sense some unhappiness? Like how did you kind of make the transition into back into the wrestling and fighting world? Yeah. I mean, there came a point where I just wanted more. I wasn't just being fulfilled. And again, I think like not every, some people are passion driven and some people can just do the groundhog day and they're okay with that. And that's fine. You need both kind of personalities in the world. And one's not better than the other. Mm-hmm. I just had to be very passion driven. So when I was getting unhappy, I went back to school and I went to Alberta's Magnus, which is, you know, local here. I got my MBA and my MS kind of, you know, when you get, I feel like getting your master's degree, it's really good. It's a good way to take a break to figure out what you want to do. Obviously I was still working, but um, I figured, well, let me get my MBA and I'll figure it out. And maybe I'll do something bigger. I, would just, I just knew there was something more. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the kind of guy who wants to just get up and work for a paycheck. And if you're in finance, that's what you do. You're literally just working for money. You know, unless you truly love, you know, ticker symbols and doing all that research and sales, it just didn't feed my soul. So uh, back in 2007, when I graduated, got my MBA. Um, I was also married at the time. I got married very young. I was 24 years old. Okay. And uh, again, 24, too young to get married. Young guy. Yeah. So we were married for two and a half years. We separated. And uh, at the time, I would go to San Diego. My best friend in high school, who was all-state track star, co- collegiate football athlete, he moved to San Diego as well. He started working at a place called The Boxing Club. And teaching boxing classes, doing strength, strength and conditioning, and uh, I used to go out and visit him. And when I was there, I was like, "Holy shit, yeah. I love this!" So I would go there, and because he worked in the gym, I literally lived in a gym with him. I go to work with him. I train like three or four times a day. I said, "This is what I want to do: live in California and just train." And uh, as soon as I separated, um, I literally packed my car, drove across country, stayed in Motel Six for a, for a week. And uh, the boxing club actually, yeah, he got me a job at the boxing club. So I went from making great money to making like $15 an hour teaching boxing classes, (laughs) you know? But I was so happy. I was so happy. And then uh, that was just the evolution of um, of fighting, of getting. Now, was the UFC getting any mainstream at this point, or was it still kind of dark days for the UFC? And like that kind of MMA world. Yeah, they are so mainstream. Okay. They literally, you know, was it last year when they WME, which is basically the biggest talent agency in Hollywood. There's like the big, big two or three, like WME, CAA. They represent everyone, and WME bought the UFC for four point two billion dollars, which is That's absolutely insane. insane. Yeah, and and between that and then this past year, the UFC locking in a deal with the. Uh, with ESPN, I think it was five years, $300 million, something like that. So now it's super mainstream. Well, no, now, I mean, I'm a huge fan, but I'm saying, like, back when you were in San Diego then, did anyone oh, even oh. know? Like, was it kind of – because, like, back in the day, if you watched UFC, it was kind of like saying you watched porn. Like, it was really taboo, you know, like yeah. in, like, 05, yes. 06. And Pat Militich yep. is from my hometown area. So, like, everyone okay. knew the Legends. Pat Militich, the Croatian sensation, and the Militich camp was in my hometown, like – all these oh, guys, shit. like Robbie Lawler, Jens Pulver, um, shit, who, uh, Matt Hughes, the great Matt wrestler, Hughes, Matt yeah. Hughes. So back in, you're in San Diego, it's probably still a little taboo. No one really knows about UFC yet. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say, so it was 10 years ago, so 2009. Yeah. So I want to say that is coming. So for me, um, another thing, so at the time, San Diego was also the epicenter for MMA. Mm-hmm. All the best gyms were there. You know, and all and all the fighters were there because, I mean, let's be real. You know, jujitsu. All the guys who jujitsu is what started MMA. Right. That was the foundation, and all those all those Brazilians either went to South Florida or San Diego when they migrated here. 
So there was such a, a hotbed of jujitsu players in San Diego, which just transitioned into MMA. Yeah. And then how did you go from just doing that? I mean, I, I can kind of guess because you're such a fanatic, kind of like the rest of us. You go from training at a gym to now you're like, shit, I want to fight. And then you have a, a pro career. I mean, like, it's, it's an incredible story. Yeah, I just, again, I always just need more. I'm like never satisfied. Like I want us to make it to the top if I can. And if I fail, I fail. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But I need to try it. And if I don't, it's it will literally ruin me. Not ruin me, but it will, I can't stop. I won't be able to stop thinking about it. You know, like, for example, I still want to fight one more time. And it's only because my last fight, I went out on an, on a loss. And I went on a loss that I feel like I shouldn't have went out on. But uh, I think about 10 times a day, and I feel like that's what still drives me. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I've, I've read about that that experience for you, and it was kind of a – it seems like a turning point because you had a, a lot of realizations, and you had to really dig deep by yourself kind of when you were in the hotel room after that fight. And you know, just, just talk us through the setting. So yeah, I believe you're in Australia at the time, and you, get into the, you have the fight, and, and kind of what happened and you know, what transpired after the fact. Yeah, so I went to watch. So I got, I was eight and zero at the time. Mm-hmm. I uh, I got the opportunity to fight their number one kid and uh, number one kid in Australia. His name was Nick Patterson. I believe he was like seventeen four at the time. Okay. Um, more of a striker than a wrestler. So for me as a wrestler, I was like, oh man, I'm just gonna take this kid down and pound him, you know. And uh, that was my game plan. Um, so I got there. I felt amazing. I had to cut a little too much weight. Not that's an excuse. It, it was my fault, regardless. I was, I'd cut 20 pounds okay. the week of the fight, um, which is, um, I usually cut about 15, but that extra five pounds is a lot. So, this first time I ever fought away, no family, no friends, um, super motivated, and I felt amazing, like I said, but something was off that night. You know, I remember going into the cage. Can you still see me? It says poor connection on my yeah, end. Yeah, I can still see it. Does say it on mine as well. But okay. I can still hear you. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Cool. Sorry. Um, so I remember walking out to the cage. I felt great. Everyone's saying "fuck America," you know, because <laughs> we were the main event. Australians are very aggressive, which I love, and I still felt great. And I remember getting to the getting into the ring. I never fought in a ring, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. As a wrestler, you want to be in a cage, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm in the ring. And I remember when they called his name, he walked out. The crowd was so loud. I was like, oh, shit. And then he get, and then he gets in the ring. And then this is when I, I really felt it for the first time. So he gets, I get in the ring. They call my name, do my call outs. Boo, boo, boo. Cool. I'm okay with that. Then they did his name. And I swear, and I'm not even fucking exaggerating, the crowd was so loud that the ring, like, literally shook under my feet a little bit. And I was like, and I looked across the ring because I'm a very like, let me stare at this guy and let me, you know. Yeah. And man, he had that glimmer in his eye, man, like walking on water. There's no way I'm losing tonight. So I think like that played a part of it. So the bell rang. Obviously, everything's working out okay. I normally come out very hard and fast as a wrestler. It's also because my comp- I wasn't only eight pro fights. I wasn't super composed yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like more like uh, raw instincts. So I came out and I was like pitter patter, threw a couple of light jabs, landing a couple of light kicks. I was giving him the feeling out process, which I never do, which means I gave him too much respect. And uh, he was kind of feeling me out too, because I think he thought I was going to take him down quick. Mm-hmm. And then um, we both threw a punch at the same time. He threw a right hand and I threw a left hook. And I still have a picture and it's like, like this close like I he just barely landed it before me and uh just caught me flush and I just remember backing up against the ropes and I backed up and I went to go you know tighten up you do an uppercut split my gloves and I dropped and the story that I always say man because it's never happened to me before I was shell-shocked I remember being on all fours my nose is pouring blood he's behind and I see it on the mat and I'm like oh shit He's behind me, just raining down punches, and again, like you don't feel it because adrenaline. Right. Just but but the sound just sounds like gunshots, like boom, boom, boom. I'm in my corner, so my my cornerman's yelling at me. The crowd the crowd is so loud, I can't hear myself think. 
the referee, I can still hear him. Improve your position, improve your position. And before you know it, it was ding, 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 and the fight was over. And that probably five seconds felt like an eternity. And I just couldn't hear myself think. And what frustrates me is if I was more experienced and composed, I would have did what you're supposed to do. Turn over, pull guard, get your composure back, and then fight again. But I didn't do that, and then it was over. So it still drives me crazy, which is why I want to run it back one more time. Right. Um, oh, yeah, and like you said, you know, the hotel room. So with fights over, everyone goes out and parties. I'm the kind of person that, yes, I love to party, but I just lost. Like, I need to reflect. I want to be by myself. Mm-hmm. And I was in that hotel room by myself in the dark, no friends, no family. And like we, we I kind of said to you, um, I think you said in the email, yeah. like I felt like Chris Tucker in that movie Friday. He was in the pigeon coop after, you know, smoking that angel dust. And I was like, oh, like an outer body experience. Like, what am I going to do with my life? Because I'd never felt that level of like, I would say failure, like uncontrollable failure. Right. And uh, I just felt very helpless. And at that moment, I was like, man, I was 33. I had a one-year-old son at home, had three knee surgeries. I had shoulder surgery, you know, broken this, broken that. And I was like, I think coming from a white-collar background in the first place, I knew I was just rational. Mm -hmm. I'm like, the chances of me being the next George St. Pierre at the time, it's pretty slim. I would have to fight a few more times, get into the UFC. Plus, once in the UFC, you're talking, what, another five, six fights to get to the top? I didn't have another 10 fights in me, not at 34. There's no there's no way, as much as I loved it. So I said to myself, what do I want to do next? What can I do next? Go back into finance. That's kind of the last resort. Um, or it was open up my own gym, have my own fight team. But at the time, my rationale was stupid as it sounds. I don't want to clean mats at 10 p.m. at night. I don't want to be at the gym opening it up at 5 a.m. I don't want to do that. What can I do on the business side to make MMA better? Right. And the only thing that I didn't love about my sport, I shouldn't say love, but the only thing that I felt could improve was the crowd. Like you said, like, you know, it wasn't too long ago that it was very taboo. And when it was taboo, it was very tap out t-shirts and Bud Lights because it came from such a grassroots feeling like, you know, like, like in Iowa, yeah. you know, there's no rules and there's no weight classes. There's no sanctioning guys weren't multifaceted, but it's evolved so fast. It's such a short period of time that the crowd hasn't really evolved with it. Like in boxing, you, know, you don't go to a local MMA show and see people in suits and ties and women in gowns. You know, everyone at a local MMA show are literally friends and family of the fighter. And that's it. You know, so how do I draw in a whole new crowd? How do I draw in the Formula One crowd as opposed to the NASCAR crowd? How do we get the boxing crowd to convert to MMA? So I said, I'm going to get my license. I'm going to be the next Dana White on a, in my own niche. Yep. And I'm going to do it in a ballroom, in a black tie setting, which they do in boxing. But no one's taking the risk to do it in MMA. So now with Smack My Company, Smash Global, you know, I have the cage in the center of a ballroom, and I do 25 to 30 tables of 10. It's black tie and gown. It's red carpet. It's a lot of celebrities and media. And you're eating dinner um, while you're watching these fights. So it's like a four-course meal, open bar, the whole nine. God, that sounds awesome, man. And you're exactly right about the boxing. My dad, even though he got us into wrestling, and I would think that he'd like UFC because MMA and Bellator and you know all of these organizations – give wrestlers some real money finally but he hated it he hates it to this day he loves boxing because it's like the good old days he, you know it's like sugar ray leonard versus Hagger. like he has these great yeah. memories in his mind and i grew up watching those fights too and you know it's a little bit more class than than uh ufc for whatever reason um and i love i love mma like no matter what the organization but i love that you're taking that approach to it so how, how has it been received so far how many fights have you guys done um, I've done eight with my ninth one coming next month on the 19th. Okay. Man, what – so talk to us a little bit about kind of the the business side of things and, and kind of how, like your daily routines. I mean, how how do you go about managing this company? Is it just you running it? Do you have a lot of staff? I mean, wh- what are some of like the, the things that go on behind the scenes that we wouldn't know about just from the outside looking in? Yeah, so when I started, it was a, I was a one-man band, which was – 
it's a it's a bittersweet thing. It's great because you learn everything about everything. You know, I was a producer. I did the sales. I was the matchmaker. So I developed a good relationship with the athletic commission. Like I did everything, the, the raising of money for charity. And as I've grown, I would add new pieces. So now I have my event producer. Um, her name is Lainey. She comes on about two to three weeks out really hard. Okay. It, once, you have, once you have the template and it's in the same ballroom, it's pretty much plug and play. So she has her, her structure and she kills it. Um, I just recently started having a matchmaker on the last show because that's people don't realize that's the hardest part of the whole game because the athletic commission is your boss. You have to follow all their rules and regulations. And then you have to fucking deal with fighters. And I was a very responsible fighter. Most fighters are not responsible. It just is what it is. They just want to fight. They don't want to go get their medicals done. They don't care about this. They don't want to sell tickets. They don't want to do anything but train and fight, which is fine but they don't realize the stress that puts on me <laughs> when, when their meds aren't done and they have to fight in a week. And I'm like, if you don't get your meds done, the commission's not going to let you fight. And they all do this, you know? And then like, Oh man, I don't want to get my meds done. I feel like shit. And I'm like, well, yeah, you shouldn't do your meds when you're cutting weight and you feel horrible and you're tired. You just want to fight, get your meds done the first week, but they all procrastinate, right. you know, almost like a, uh, most kids, when they're taking tests, they study the night before. They don't study leading up. So, uh, and then, you know, you have every fight. Fighters get hurt during camp. Yeah. You have to find replacements. The replacements know they're a replacement. They want more money. And it's just like, it was just such a nightmare. So I hired a great matchmaker, and this guy, Mel, and uh, he filled my car this time. And it was just seamless. It's nice to not have to worry about it. Yeah. And then, and then sales. Sales are very difficult because I'm targeting a market that generally doesn't watch MMA live. Mm -hmm. Like they can't even name three UFC champions, which is why I always honor somebody at my show so I can have some kind of name recognition. So then I can get that crowd to come. Oh, you're honoring Dolph Lundgren. I would love to meet Dolph. So I'm definitely going to come now. Yeah. You know, so I kind of use MMA as like my platform for entertainment on the night. I don't focus on MMA only. But I'm realizing the problem with that is it's more so in LA. Like, for example, for this show, you know, my sales usually come about the last two weeks because okay. no one's buying tickets really early, especially in LA. People are very last minute. And an issue is everyone asks me, Steve, who are you going to honor? Who are your celebrities? That's all people care about. No one's like, oh, Steve, who's fighting on your card? I can't wait to see these fighters. So, I have to try to get back to getting people to not think about the celebrities so much okay. and care more about the guys who are going to be fighting in the cage. I was going to ask you that because you're you're like the world class networker, man. Your network is insane. I just saw a picture of you with A Rod last week, man. And yeah. So how do you, before we get to the fighter piece, how do you kind of bring some of these celebrities in? Because you've had like Mickey Rourke, you've had Shane Mosley. I mean, just you know, Steven Seagal, the who's who, I mean, how does that all kind of come about? Yeah, I would say it's like a, let me see. I would say it's a 50, 50 thing. You know, some of these guys that I, I just met along the way, just living in Los Angeles and being that guy who's doing something different in MMA and all those guys love MMA, right? you know, and most of them don't go to the, you know, the UFCs and the local shows because it's actually an impediment. You know, for them to go to a show and have extra security and be inundated by people wanting their picture by the time they get to their seat, it's like they've been asked to take a picture with every fighter, every manager, every fighter's girlfriend, and ends up being not an enjoyable night for them. So, um, so when it comes to my show, I only have 250 people. You know, they know it's very exclusive, more apt to come. If they want more security, I'll bring more security for them. And as of now, you know, the fight world and the fight game is a very small community and everyone seems to know each other. Yeah. Um, so I do have a lot of relationships because of the gyms, like, you know, going to train, a, going to train at wild cards. So Freddie has become a friend, for example. Yeah. And, uh, and aside from that, it's a lot of one degrees of separation. I don't always give myself the credit. Right. You know, I have a lot of people who know that, who know people, you know, it's so like for the last show. Uh, like Dolph Lundgren I got because of Tom Callahan, who's a friend of mine, 
who's also his sensei or his instructor instructor for Kyokushin Karate. Or Mickey Rourke, I got him because a friend of mine, Danny Hester, who was uh, the first classic bodybuilding champion, Mr. Olympia, is, trains him. So that's how I got Mickey Rourke. So a lot of it has to do with the one degree of separation, which is why networking is everything and building that circle is imp so important. Man. Something that every fighter needs to remember. <laughs> I mean, that and it's like, no matter what you do, it's so much more about the people you know and, and your reputation with those people based on the kind of work you put in and the kind of person you are. I mean, the last time I applied for a job where I just applied online was like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? You, yeah. You, you cannot live like that. And, um, you know, I just think you're living proof of that. And I, I got to say, the first time I came across your Instagram profile, I was like a little jealous. I looked at, I'm like, man, you have all these followers. You're running this company. I'm like, man, well, this guy's unbelievable. And then I heard you tell this story about Mickey Rourke where I think it was your in-laws or somebody had you watch this old school Mickey Rourke movie way yeah. old school and you're like man no one knows this shit about this guy that it's a journey and it's a process that he had to start there and come back to you know now he's a household name I don't know if you remember the story I'm telling talking about when you yep. watch that Mickey Rourke film but it just kind of reinforced to me that hey man everyone's along their journey you don't know where they're at so it's tough to compare yourself to others when you think about those networking circles yeah because when people only you're only once people only know you until once you're in the spotlight. Right. But people don't realize how long it takes to get to the spotlight. It's not the lottery. It's not like, oh, I just bought a lottery ticket and all of a sudden now I'm a I'm worth a hundred million dollars. Like these guys, like say Sylvester Stallone, you know what I mean? Hundreds of thousands of hours he had to put in to get to where he is, all of those guys. Right. And it's incredible. Or these fighters, like, oh wow, um, I don't know. Conor McGregor, yeah. yeah, he he did an amazing. He's didn't or let's say Floyd Mayweather. There's a better example. Like Floyd Mayweather, he's a champion. He's a billionaire. He's this. He's that. Well, guess what? He's been boxing since he was like five years old. Right. Do you know how long he's been training for? He just wake up and just put on gloves and is like the best in the world. Like people only see the final product and they don't realize how long it took to get to the final product. Exactly. And you talked about Freddie Roach earlier, which made me think of Aaron Pico. You know, I remember Aaron yeah. Pico coming up, and in like 2016, he was at the Olympic trials in the finals against Frank Molinero, and he's 18 years old. And yeah. you think back, though, that dude was going around with Valentin Kalika, traveling Russia and Ukraine when he was like a freshman, sophomore in high school. Like, he stopped going to high school just so he could wrestle freestyle. So all those trips, his sophomore, junior, and senior year, no one really saw that. And then at the Olympic trials in 2016, you're seeing this phenom wrestle, and it's like, overnight success but of course that's not the case never the case and i'm glad you mentioned aaron pico because he's such a good kid mm. and he's the one literally of every single person that's turned pro in mma he was the one i was probably the most excited about i'm like oh this kid's gonna fucking smash everyone yeah he's learning boxing from freddie now and i know his mindset he's a Iron his mindset Iron. yeah his mindset is on a whole nother level and then for him to come in and take that loss against someone he shouldn't have, I was like, holy shit. It goes to show how hard it is when in MMA because he's not experienced in MMA. Great wrestler. Mindset is crazy. But you still have to put all of that together. Yeah. So the guys that have been in MMA for 10, 10 15 years, they naturally know how to put it all together. You know, and uh, I, I can talk about Aaron Pico. What for Aaron Pico? Because I, I – mean, I – my brother and I couldn't be bigger fans. Anytime he would come on, it doesn't matter what show it is, we'd stop the show, we'd all watch it. And it's just heartbreaking to see those losses. And it's almost kind of puzzling because no other wrestler has had that kind of uh, adversity, I guess you could say. I mean, of course there have been, but that high profile of a wrestler, usually they come in, they get to a title fight, and then they kind of bang around from there. What do you? What's the future hold for him, in your opinion? Aaron, Aaron Pico. His biggest asset is also his biggest flaw, and that his um, and that's his. It's actually his mindset. For example, he's the kind of person that wants to prove everyone wrong right. all the time because he wants to be the greatest. He wants to be known to be as being a legend. He and everyone already knows he's the best wrestler in the cage every single time. Yeah. So he wants to show everyone that he can throw hands and he can stand up with anyone. The problem is, is you can't, you know. And he's the kind of kid that if he just wrestled and did ground and pound and smashed like i don't know 
a GSP. Yeah. Yeah. Cormier, or even like a GSP. Like GSP is not a, a pure wrestler, but you can't even stop his double leg takedowns, you know? So Aaron Pico needs to stop going in there and trying to bang with guys because listen, you get clipped with those gloves, it's lights out. I don't care how good you are. And he already got knocked out once, which means, you know, this nerve here has already been moved. So his knockout rate of getting hit is going to be far more than yeah. what it used to be. So he just needs to go to his bread and butter. If he just wrestled and just smashed guys on the ground, I don't think anyone in Bellator would even stand next to him. Not even a question. His wrestling is too good. So good. I mean, think about Zane Rutherford, one of the best in the game right now. Pico's 8-0 and against him. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah. people, let's let's not forget here, 8-0 and against Zane. Um and he beat Steber when he was 18 years old at that Olympic trials. So to your point, his wrestling's on par. I would love to see him at AKA. Get him up there with Cormier and get him up there with the wrestlers and get that ground and pound style going. But you know, what yeah, do like, I look know? at? Look, you know, yeah, but you know, look at Khabib. Yeah, exactly. You That's know, what that, I'm saying. This guy's a monster. There's no reason why. I, I feel like if Aaron Pico was on top of you, he's so relentless. He would smash all of these guys. But again. He wants to just show everyone that he can throw punches, and he punches hard. Oh, yeah. Like, the way he wrestles, he also punches the same way. But the problem is, is guess what? You get punched back. If you punch hard, you put everything into it, and you get into those exchanges, somebody's going down. It's like a 50-50 chance, like rock'em, sock'em, robots. Right. And then, and every time he's gotten dropped, it was during an exchange. After he already rocked somebody, and then he goes in for the kill when he could just when you rock somebody, double A takedown, put him on the ground, choke him out, or just ground and pound him. But yeah, it's this. He's stubborn. We he haven't wants to seen show him everyone. do a takedown yet. That even when he no. wins, it's freaking. I'm like, God, it's so frustrating. But I like that he's taking some time off. I like that he's at Jackson's. Um, we'll see what happens, man. And I know we're about at the time here. I want to ask you just three quick questions that are more so selfish, quite selfish questions for me. Um, then we'll yeah. let you go. Sound good? Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so the one is, you have your social media game on point, and I've heard you talk about Gary V. You know, what do you attribute your success to, or what's your strategy when it comes to social media? Uh, just being myself. You know, like, there's a lot of guys, people who are influencers, and always promoting products, which I'm not a big fan of. Um, and again, like, even like, I love Gary V, but there's so many influencers. Um, that do motivational stuff and they just it ends up being very repetitive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I hear the same shit over and over and over again. So I just kind of just go with the flow and just do what I love, what I'm passionate about. And I really think that resonates. Like people, people know when you're being real or you're not being real, you know, and that's what people always say, say, so okay. being relatable, being relatable is the most important thing. And obviously, you know, you gotta, you find your niche. So, like for me, like I do a lot of um, experimenting on what works. I know when I post something about one meal a day, I get so much response or something with the way I train, I get a lot of response. Um, but if I were to take a picture with a celebrity or a hey, car, man. yeah, <laughs> I might not get as much response. Um, I probably get more likes, but people want to be, to be relatable. So you're thinking about it in terms of strategy and of what gets engagement, though. So you are putting some thought into your social media game because I, I love that you put an emphasis on it because it's obviously it's everything in this day and age. Oh, without a doubt. And it, it's really hard now. You know, back in the day, like my, my so I've only been on social media for a couple of years, but, you know, it's almost like Bitcoin. The people who got into Instagram eight years ago, unless you're a super A-lister, those are the people who, like have eight million followers. Right. Whereas now, because I remember the first hundred thousand weren't that wasn't that difficult. Now maybe I get a thousand a month. It's so hard. I'm like, how do I get more followers? But it's really difficult because you you get to a point where even I I don't follow that many new people. Mm -hmm. For me to start following somebody new, it's got to it takes a lot. Right. And I think I think that's how most people are. Most people on Instagram now are so set in the people they follow. Yeah. They generally don't follow that many new people unless there's like a motive behind it. I got to tell you, Gary V got me on TikTok, and I'm on TikTok as of this week. Yeah. That's the Wild West, baby. That is the fucking it Wild is. West. There's, It's crazy. Um, you know, it's a younger crowd, so you got to change the content a little bit. But 
you know, I feel like the old man in there showing them videos of Joe Williams or Mike Meta. You know, like I feel like the dad going in there, but it's so new that shit on there is getting ten times more engagement than Instagram. Um, only in my first yeah. week of being on there. So, yeah, because even um, you know, Facebook four or five years ago was everything. Right. I go on Facebook maybe once a day. And then it was Instagram is everything, and it still is everything. Mm -hmm. But I do see that shift with TikTok. I don't use TikTok. I did start a TikTok account. I just haven't figured it. I haven't really thought and figured out how I'm going to do it. Because again, I feel like an old man. What am I going to do to engage with these kids? You know, I have a 13 year old daughter and a five year old son. So I watch my daughter a lot, like what she's doing, who she's following. Right. You know, and and you have to. If you're not watching the next generation, you're not going to evolve so if the kids now are like tiktok you got to do it and one thing you notice with like i obviously again i follow my high school wrestlers now as well as my daughter they don't post on instagram that much no but they all watch my stories i'm like okay so they're watching but they're not like engaging anymore you know they're not putting any effort in so tiktok is you know is, is where they're going. They can just watch a video for 10 seconds on to the next one. I'm blown away by how creative these kids are, though, on TikTok. Like, oh, these my God. videos are in-depth. And, you know, Gary says this all the time, but it's such a good point. Even if you're going on TikTok and you're not, you know, enjoying it, learning how to create videos like that is a skill. Like, these kids are putting so much freaking time into these TikTok videos. I'm blown away by it. I, every once in a while, I'll send my brother one because he's off social media and, we're 12 months apart, and so I'll go, dude, look at this freaking video on TikTok. Like, the amount of work these kids put into it, it's a 15-second clip of them lip-syncing or lip-syncing. Yeah. It's, it's hysterical. And they have, like, 100,000 views. I'm like, how oh. do they have 100,000 views? Dude, I was looking at this kid who's uh, – I can't remember his name, but he's going to wrestle at Harvard next year. He's at Wyoming Seminary now, one of the top kids in the country. He has 500,000 followers on TikTok. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and then second to last question for you is – you're a guy who loves fitness. Hit us with a typical workout routine for you. How long is it? What are you doing in that workout? Yeah, so again, I'm the guy who I never go into the gym knowing what I'm going to do. Okay. I go in and just feel what I feel, but I do separate. So I'll do push day, a pull day, and like a leg day, and I'll repeat. And I don't take a day off until my, until my body tells me I need to take a day off. Like I don't believe in the two days on, one day off. No, I'll go – 14 days in a row if I can. Yep. And so I wake up one morning and I'm like, oh, I'm just not feeling it. Or if I go to the gym and I'm walking on the treadmill and I just don't feel it that day, I'll just get in my car and go back home. Gotcha. So okay. you really have to, you really have to listen to your body. You can't like listen to this when it comes to working out. Cause everyone always tries to push through things. And when you push through shit, that's when you get hurt. And I know that's the opposite of what Dan Gable or brands <laughs> would tell you. And I, and I agree with those guys on that, but I think you do have to train smarter now, yeah, not harder. And I still train hard as shit, but you still have to be smart, especially at an older age. When you're in your 20s, it's different. But once you get to like 35 plus, you have to be so much smarter with the way you train. You're probably on the extreme of that, though, where you'll go 15 days in a row. The average person, they might go one day and be like, shit, man, I'm a little sore today. So there's definitely a yeah. balancing act to that. And again, and again, I... Because I would never want to make people feel bad, like, oh, I right. trained so much harder than you. Um, a lot of it, again, has to do with the way your brain is wired. Mm -hmm. I'm the kind of guy, when I go to the gym and I train hard, my endorphins go through the roof. Right. You know, but if I were to go outside and road run right now and say, oh, we got to go run 10 miles, I'm miserable. I hate running. But there's other people that get runners high. I'm yeah. like, I don't feel that. But I feel that when I train at a very intense level. You know, and there's some people like my mom, she doesn't go to the gym. You know, she goes to the gym. She's like, I want to go home. Some people just don't feel it. You can't help it. It's just how your brain's wired. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. And thank God for wrestling because it's just second oh, yes. nature. You can't go, you know, I can't go a couple of days without feeling some tension. Or if I, if I am super bogged down with the podcast or, or whatever I'm working on, and it's been three days without working out, which is rare, I start to feel a little weight on the chest. And I'm like, what yeah. is that? I'm like, oh yeah, haven't worked out in three days. Let's get back to the get back to the kettlebells or whatever it is. And so last, I agree with you. Yeah. And so last question for you is: We ask everyone this: How did wrestling change your life? Or another way to put it is: What life lessons 
have you taken away from wrestling that you still use every day? Uh, embracing failure, embrace failure and struggle, you know? So my freshman year, like I told you, um, you know, having a state champion above me and having all state guy below me and being a one of three pounder going up to one twelve. I think my record, my first year was like three and something. So I literally got my ass whooped every match, got embarrassed all the time and got my ass whooped in the room every day, but I always wanted more and I kept on coming back. And I think that's what built me who I am today. Most people can't embrace failure, you know, and they're scared to fail. So, you know, wrestling, when you're on the mat wrestling, you're by yourself in front of the entire crowd, in front of another wrestling team, in front of your own wrestling team, you're so accountable. And if you can lose and come back and do it again in front of the same people and lose again and keep coming back, it builds like iron around your heart. Like your mindset is on a whole nother level. Yeah. And it's like to, to endure that and then make leaps and bounds and you know get better. It's like, there's so much self-reflection and I feel like that's something so that much you don't see that much anymore. You know, like looking in no. No, you don't. And um, I always tell these kids now, because whenever they go up against someone that's way better, like a state champion, for example, or someone who's all an All-American, I'm always like, listen, they are better than you. I get it. But guess what? A state champion or someone who's All-American has only been on their back a few times in their life. You put them on their back, it's like they are fucking a freshman who never wrestled again. So all you got to do is get them on their back. And they're no different than you. You're probably better. You're better than them if you get them on their back. Right, that guy's been bridging all month, man. He's got the bridges yeah. down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, it's been an honor to talk with you. I was really looking forward to this. And last thing is, where can they find you on social media? And you know, where can they find more about your company and the things you're doing? Yeah, so my website is uh, www.smashglobal.com. Find everything about my company there. And then uh, for social media, my name's Steve Orozco. Or you could probably uh, search Mr. Smash, so mr.smash. Beautiful, man. Well, like I said, it's been an honor. Had a lot of fun. Have a great day, man, and uh, hope to connect with you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care.